0: Again tonight to the book of Matthew and to the chapter 6, chapter 6 of Matthew, and we'll read from verse 5, Matthew 6 and the verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. Thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not thee in repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking be not ye therefore like unto them for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him after this manner therefore pray ye our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. We know the Lord will add His blessing onto our reading tonight of His precious Word. So we've come back to the subject again from the corner to the closet. And that'll be suspended again next week, God willing, whenever we have a visit from Puyan Mershaki. He's an Iranian fellow, went through the college, Whitfield College of the Bible, and now ministers in Cheltenham. He has been involved in the Farsi project, Bible translation into the Iranian language, and will give a report on that and we'll preach the Word too as he's over for a conference uh, preaching for the Trinitarian Bible Society, and then he's doing a few meetings while he's here, and he'll be coming God-willing next Wednesday night. But we have the Word of God open before us, and we're in Matthew 6, so let's again come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, teach us to avoid the vain repetition that the heathen favor. Teach us, Lord, to avoid the trumpeting whereby we are projecting and promoting ourselves. Do, as the disciples asked thee, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And, Lord, it's an ongoing thing that we must acknowledge. We can become very steel so quickly. We can be just rolling the wheel and churning out the same kind of thing day by day by day. And so we ask, Lord, that I will come and give force and freshness to our intercessions, that I will lead us in a direction that will best magnify thee at that given hour. We pray that our eye will be to thy glory, that we will see thy majesty and splendor, that we'll therefore automatically, and not in a manufactured way, but because we have seen the Lord, we'll be as Isaiah was in Isaiah 6, that he will cry out, knowing that he is a man of unclean lips, and he dwells among a people of unclean lips. And he will acknowledge, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Lord, we as thee that thou art on our side, that thou hast enlisted us in thine army. And we pray that we'll be willing to be on the battlefield, And to stand for Christ, and having done all, to keep standing in thy name, and to thy praise we pray. Amen. It would be very interesting to get the thoughts of a notable person who was well experienced in prayer. When he comes and he looks at the passage we're looking at, Matthew 9, Matthew 6 in the verse 9 through to the verse 15, and I thought, well, I have a book in my library, in fact, a set of books, by an American preacher, Dr. Edward Payson, and he was known as Praying Payson of Portland, ministered over there for twenty years plus. 1807 through to 1826. He had ministry in other places as well. But he was very well known, not only in on account of his preaching, people did flock to hear him preach, and they well appreciated the way in which he did take the Word of God, preach the subjects there. But one thing stood out about this man, and it was the way he prayed. You would greatly oblige me, a lady said to him one day, and she was a rather distinguished lady, and she's leaving the service after Dr. Payson had preached and prayed. She said, you would greatly oblige me by loaning me a copy of your prayer today. And that was pretty typical because few people would have heard this man pray without feeling something similar. Some of them talked about the seraphic appearance of Payson whenever he did pray, and at times it seemed to them that he was almost transfigured before them in a the public arena when he came and called upon the Lord. There was, someone testified, something in his prayers, powerful to arrest and fix attention something which seized and absorbed the faculties of the soul and separated it, for the time being at least, from its connections with this present evil world. And so it seems that whenever pace and prayed, the people themselves would have been transported heavenward and felt the Lord drawing very near. And so I felt, well, here is a man who'd be a good authority, to ask him what he thought of this particular prayer. And he said of it, On this, as on all other occasions, Jesus spoke as never man spake. In the compass of six short petitions, expressed in language at once simple and dignified, he has included everything necessary for man to ask, and for God to bestow, and at the same time, He has shown us the spirit which should animate our devotions, and directly, but impress, indirectly but impressively, taught us our duty to our Creator, to our fellow creatures, and to ourselves. I know it'll take a little bit of time to digest exactly what Payson said there, but when you look at that, when you let it be absorbed by your mind, then I think you'll come to the conclusion Payson was exactly right in analyzing this particular prayer. Tonight we're going to move to petition number two out of the six main petitions in the prayer, and that's bringing us into verse 9, and in particular into the beginning of the 10th verse. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then the three words in the English that we're looking at tonight, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Some explanation about the kingdom to begin with. What we're being encouraged to pray about is the spiritual kingdom that our Lord Jesus came to establish. He assured all of those that listened to him that that kingdom wasn't an external outward kingdom. In Luke 17, verse 20 and 21, for example, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation." Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he also declared in John 18 to verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence." Paul defines the kingdom over in the book of Romans, the chapter 14, the verse 17, and he says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, not an external, not an earthly kingdom, that's his line there, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And so, when we think of a kingdom, and we look at the kingdoms of this world, then they're flowing in the opposite direction, and they're gearing themselves in a wholly different ballpark from what the kingdom of Jesus Christ is existing in. It is, therefore, a spiritual kingdom. Its throne is erected in the hearts of men. Its laws are the benevolent precepts and doctrines of the gospel. Its subjects consist of those on whose hearts these laws are indelibly inscribed by the finger of God. Now, the Jews were going around, and they were obviously coming out of the historical period, the Maccabees, and rebellions, and looking to the Romans now as the invaders of their land, and they were trying to get rid of all of those Romans, and they made a huge mistake here. They'd read the Bible. They misunderstood it. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to arrive in Palestine with all of the force of what would come later, an atomic bomb, and he would simply blow those Roman invaders back out across the Mediterranean Sea, and he would reduce everybody who stood up to oppose him to either chains, or on the other hand, he would reduce them to powder. You will remember Herod, and he was given over to this common Jewish misconception as well. Word came to him that the King of the Jews had been born, Matthew chapter 2, and we know how he reacted Well, he viewed that birth as an immediate threat to the stability of his throne. And of course, his own throne wasn't terribly stable anyway, because he was a puppet king propped up by the Roman invaders, no less. But he acted with ferocity, and he acted with velocity to try and find out who this usurper is, this earthly king. And therefore, we had the slaughter of the infants at Bethlehem, Herod's murderous crusade, to make sure he had no rival. Not only did he interpret it as an earthly kingdom, but we have an accusation that came in against Jesus when he was before Pilate. Matthew 27, verse 11, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. We have those two disciples, and they're sharing their morbid notes one with the other and they're depressing one another as they make their way to their home village in Emmaus and we read of them in Luke 24 and the verse 21 and they're saying but we trust that it had been he which should have redeemed or delivered Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Those disciples, again, in their mind, their primary focus was an earthly kingdom of a Messiah who would wield a sword for their deliverance. Then, just about forty days later, before he ascended to heaven, we find that again they were harboring this idea of a material kingdom. If you turn up to Acts 1 and read from verse 1 to the verse 8, then you'll find again that that's the focus of their thinking. I'll read verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So, again, they're thinking in a horizontal fashion. They're looking for a physical and material kingdom once more. And he saying to them, the kingdom that I am supremely interested in is one that is going to begin here in Jerusalem. And then it will spread out and it will take over Judea, and it will keep spreading into Samaria, and it will go beyond the boundaries of Samaria because it will reach to the uttermost part of the earth. And the kingdom spread here is that of a spiritual kingdom pushed forward by the power of God the Holy Ghost. The kingdom is spiritual. It's a kingdom of grace. And so, it has been said That when, therefore, we pray, as we're taught to do in Matthew 6 and 10, when we pray that this kingdom may come, what are we praying for? We pray for the universal prevalence of Christianity, and for the removal, the renovation, or destruction of everything which tends to retard or limit its progress— We pray that the gospel of Christ may be known, believed, and obeyed throughout the world, that his religion may soon become the only religion of man, and that its glorious effects that Paul mentions over in Romans, righteousness, peace, and holy joy may universally prevail. Notice those words. We are praying by this phrase, thy kingdom come, that his religion may soon become the only religion of man. And people today will say, well, that's very blinkered off you. That's coming down a very narrow track. Uh, Surely you shouldn't be praying in that kind of way. Don't you know the climate in which we live today? And of course, we live in a day when multi-faithism is the order of the day. And everybody wants to say that, well, all faiths, there is some good in them, and they lead to God in their own way, and you can take a bit of this one and that one and merge it together and put it into a mold, and you'll have a wonderful faith as a result of all of that, and all the emphasis is on unity. And we have that flowing through the religious education curriculums that are operational in schools. It's not that long ago that Lady Olga Maitland said that she feared Christianity, the way the teaching was going in the schools, would become a minority faith in some schools because of these guidelines that are being brought in for the teaching of religious education. Back then, they were saying that it should be mostly Christian. And of course, things have moved on from that point. Some and I quote a free is from well over twenty years ago where they were recommending this to be brought into schools. I believe in the Father, the Son, Mohammed, Moses, Buddha Vishnu. And that was from the lips of some educational commentator back then who was commenting on the new RE guidelines, teaching six religions. And he said, we'll probably end up teaching faith in none as a result. And that's exactly the case. And this is what we must counter today. By our prayers, backed up by our practice, we need to be crying to the Lord, Thy kingdom come. And our desire is that the fullness of His glory would be revealed, that His grace will be shown, that many souls will be pulled into the kingdom of mercy by the sovereign operation of His Spirit. And that is what Matthew 6 and 10 is encouraging us to pray for. An old Scottish preacher, David Dixon, he looked at this verse and he said, God will have all his disciples drawing at his royal and triumphing chariot by their prayers and saying, Thy kingdom come. And I think the picture is a good one here that we're harnessing ourselves to the Lord's chariot by means of prayers, and we're pulling it along, praying, Lord, spread thy gracious influence all over our city and country. So, we have words of explanation here what the kingdom is in view then not only explanation about the kingdom, but motivation for the kingdom. In other words, why should we take up this little prayer? And why should we have it on our lips and upon our hearts, Thy kingdom come? Well, reason number one for that, the command that we have here, this is the command of God. Heaven requires this, of us, The disciples have said, Lord, teach us to pray. Our Lord comes back and here's one of the petitions that He brings to their attention. Here's one to offer to heaven. And He commands us, pray for the peace and for the prosperity of the church. Don't be giving silence. Don't be giving Him any rest until He establishes that church and until He makes it a priest within the earth, Isaiah 62 and verse 7. So why should I pray and why should I pray, pray, pray fervently for this? particular petition, thy kingdom come, I should do it because of the command in this prayer. Not only that, the commendation through this prayer as well. When this prayer will be answered, then the glory of God will be greatly promoted among men. Now, that glory of God, that essential glory that He has, here's something we should note about that. That glory never changes, never alters, can't be diminished in real terms. It cannot be increased in real terms either. It does not know any change, but His glory as He displays it, before the eyes of His creatures. And that glory, as we ourselves perceive it, that's linked to the prosperity of His kingdom. And so, His glory will appear in our eyes in a greater or a lesser degree according to the state of His kingdom here upon the earth. Let me explain it like this. The sun is always bright and shining, and yet for about eight Ours out of every 24, if you were to look up at the sky, then our simplistic reasoning would say, well, look, it's so dark here, the sun has been switched off. It's not shining, it appears to have gone out. And of course, given our climate, even given today, there are many times during the other sixteen hours when the clouds and the mist and the rain, they obscure the sun and they prevent its beams getting through to us. But though we can't see it, it is still shining. God's glory never loses its luster, even when our poor eyes can't pick it up. He, the Father of lights, the Son of this universe. Yes, He's often shrouded by a veil, the veil of our inconsistencies and the veil of our sins, and His name is dishonored rather than glorified by men around us. How will we see the glory of God? Well, we see it in His works, we find it in His Word. In Psalm 19, to think of his works, the verse 1 to four, that famous passage, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And the psalmist is teaching us here that this universe around us, created by God. It's speaking from every sector with a myriad voices. It's testifying to God's glory. And yet, of course, even this glory of creating and preserving the world, man love to rob God of that particular glory, the idolater. He takes the glory from him, and he ascribes that glory to a worthless little idol, not only he, but the infidel tries to take God's glory from him, and he declares in the face of mountains of pointers to the contrary on every side of him, he declares there is new God. The evolutionist again comes in and tries to strip God of his glory, and so he designates this creation of the universe. Oh, that's the work of the big bang, not of some creator God. Paul has them all sized up so well. In Romans 1, verse 19 to 25, "...because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." And he goes on to say that how when they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. They weren't thankful. They became vain or empty in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They professed that we are wise. And so they showed up their own falling. They changed the glory. This is their target. The glory of the incorruptible God. And they changed it into an image. Be it like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They changed the truth of God into a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who was blessed forever. And God, we are told in that passage, He just progressively gave them up to their own devices. Let them run in their own infidelistic way and reach their own end are many millions of otherwise intelligent persons at this moment in time are bowing down across our world to stalks and stones and to marble and metal and to idols and images, and they're giving adoration to these empty things just because they know the alternative is to worship the eternal God, but they prefer an impure item or a cruel idol. God is standing across our world today with very few, comparatively few, real worshipers in a world that He has made, in a world that He maintains, in a world that He fills with His goodness. One has lamented, Behold, His kingdom extensive, and His subjects almost innumerable. They're talking of the devil's kingdom there. His kingdom extensive, His subjects almost innumerable. And then they contrast that while the kingdom of God is circumscribed within narrow limits, and His subjects are comparatively few we can see that more and more in our own country. What shame is thrown at the name of God in this land? How openly, regularly His name is blasphemed. How blatantly His Sabbaths are profaned. How callously is His Word rejected and abused and trampled underfoot. And how desperately the gospel of His dear Son is despised. But how should we feel living in the middle of the spiritual climate we do and how should we act and react to this dishonoring of our god anybody with the smallest portion of reverence and love for his creator he cannot surely bear to see him dishonored and insulted and robbed of his glory without showing grief and indignation too Does a child who loves his father fail to react when his father is dishonored? Does a loyal subject of any king anywhere on earth remain without emotion whenever his sovereign is humiliated? And can we, the children of God, when our almighty sovereign is insulted and debased and dishonored and neglected in the way in which he is by sinful men and women today, can we look on dispassionately, without feeling the strongest emotions of sorrow, and fervently praying as we're taught here, Lord, Thy kingdom come. Flood the earth with the knowledge of Thy glory. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 102 in the verse 16 and 17, when the Lord shall build up Zion, He shall appear in His glory, he will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. And at that time, going back to verse 15 in the same Psalm 102, the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. So, what are we doing here in terms of motivation? We're motivated by these considerations also, the consolations that will flow from this prayer, Thy kingdom come. The benefits that come to man as a result of this prayer, because these benefits are not small, Thy kingdom come. We've noted already in Romans 14 and 17 that the features of the kingdom, their righteousness, their peace, their joy in the Holy Ghost, And surely as we look into our church, and we look into our hearts, and we look into our city, and we look into our country, we're saying, well, these are the kind of blessings that we need in Ulster today. Righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Pick up a newspaper, turn on the radio, flick on the television. What do we have? A whole catalog of sickening crime, day in, day out. It is so numbingly repetitive a child snatched and killed here, a woman assaulted and slaughtered there, people brutally murdered, taken out by execution squads, injustice, discord, misery about everywhere. And we're tuning in to Genesis 6 the verse 11 and 13, and we're saying, well, as it was in the days of Noah… So it is in ours. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. That's how it is today. Back in the days of Habakkuk the prophet, and he's lamenting over what he sees. In chapter 1, the verse 3 and 4, he says, Spoiling and violence are before me. There are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. And he is right up to date in terms of where we are again today. Take man individually. How does he appear? Largely stripped of kindness and benevolence, spurred on by selfish, and envious, and malignant passions, harassed by guilty fears and the reproaches of a guilty conscience. Take the family unit. Can we even describe it as a family unit in many, many cases anymore? We'd maybe be better asking, where is it? Where's the evidence of that? Because we're living in a day of outright rebellion against God's institution of one man, one wife, until death, them do part. The majority of children in our country are born outside of marriage. How many fornicators? How many adulterers? How many perverts? The whole scene oozes. Filth and wallows in the gutter, and to say there's a concentrated attack on the family unit would be one of the understatements of the century, and expanded out from individually and collectively to nationally. And yes, we're aware of what's happening in Ukraine, and we know the number of lives that have been taken there. It's been in our headlines for well over 200 days now. We know a little of an even longer, more brutal conflict in Yemen. We've heard of Afghanistan. Realised that the withdrawal of the Western troops has by no means been the solution that that country needed but maybe we don't know as much about the ongoing wars, principally drug wars in Mexico, claiming thousands of lives. Or Myanmar that again has disappeared largely out of our headlines, even though thousands of people are being killed there. And a bigger conflict than Ukraine is. Ethiopia, who was heard or knows anything about. And I know it came on BBC News about the 16th of October there, and maybe again on the 18th. But largely, here's a conflict raging for two years that has been ignored. Now they're trying to negotiate a peace there after 100,000 lives have been claimed. And so man is rising up against man, as the Bible said he would, because the Bible knows how wicked the heart of man is. Well, what's the remedy to all of this? Because this is clearly not the establishing of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come, but that prayer is not being seen or reflected by these events. That's the devil's work. What's the remedy? It's pretty simple. It's a universal spread of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. William Carey, great missionary that left his native Northampton, traveled over to India, blazed a trail for the gospel of the grace of God, that gospel that he proclaimed. It took time, but it changed hearts. It changed lives. They turned around practices. They moved purposes, and such was the impact on India that thousands were converted to Christ. It was the remedy the gospel of Christ, the spread of His kingdom, and it's still the remedy because Acts 4 and 12 is still very much in vogue. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only the extension of His kingdom that is the sure and the proven remedy for all present and future ills that our globe languishes in. Let's have righteousness. Let's have peace. Let's have joy in the Holy Ghost. Let them have swain, and then sin and misery will be taken care of. We have a lot of people they are preaching what they call, wrongly, a gospel of social justice, universal righteousness, would take care of all the evils springing out of fraud and injustice and oppression. Peace with God would deliver man from the heavy judgments and calamities that man brings upon his own head by his rejection of the authority of God. Peace of conscience would free him from that guilty fear, from that remorse, from that dread of death that puts a dagger right to his throat. The consoling joy of the Holy Ghost would give men, even while they're living here on earth, that foretaste of the joys of heaven. This is the answer. The glorious results from the spread of Christ's kingdom here upon the earth. And we had the text on display there in Psalm 72 and 7, and Psalm 72, 17 and 19, and Isaiah 35 talking about the wilderness and solitary place, breaking out into gladness, the Lord working upon His people, restoring that state of paradise that Adam lost, brought in by peace and righteousness and joy in the kingdom of the Prince of Peace. That's what we're praying for when we plead with God, thy kingdom come. Then think of the conquest from this prayer. I'm talking about what the result is way closer to home. In our own hearts and minds, our own lives, how will this prayer and me praying it, how will it affect me? Thy kingdom come. Nothing Destroy sinful passions in our hearts. Nothing speeds up the work of grace and its development within our souls like praying for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Nothing will do this church more good than constantly holding upon the Lord for the spread of His kingdom in this place. That's what we need to do If we want the work to move forward here, not to be comparing notes and saying what our brother or our sister is doing and think, well, uh, they're doing something to glorify the Lord Jesus. Maybe I should be doing the very same thing or doing it better than they're doing it. Let's not look at what they're doing. Just be content. They're doing something for Him. And let's ply our own for and see God glorified. Let's get into our closets. Shut the door supplicate God's throne with strong crying and tears, so that He will send the blessings of His kingdom on the world around us. Again, I go back to Edward Payson. When we pray, thy kingdom come, how will that affect our personal walk with God? Payson said, you will breathe the very spirit and temper of heaven, you will be transformed for a time into the image of Christ. You will feel that His kingdom is set up in your hearts. And he goes on to say, and that you were filled with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And surely that's what we want. Finally, some words of caution. Explanation about the kingdom, motivation for the kingdom, caution concerning the kingdom here, If our prayers for the spread of the kingdom of Christ are going to be heeded by God, found to be acceptable by Him, first of all, there needs to be accompaniment. I can't just pray, Thy kingdom come, get out of the closet, get on with my own business all the time, and forget about His kingdom's business. My prayer must be accompanied by corresponding and appropriate exertion. It is our duty to pray for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And it's no less our duty to do all in our personal power to promote it. Don't be leaving it to brother X. Don't be leaving it to sister Y. Ask ourselves, how can I be involved? How can I be a part of sending forth, spreading out God's kingdom here upon the earth. How can I get out and labor for the spread of that kingdom? A little girl sent a little money to a man to buy a number of tracts, sent a little note with that money that was the most she could donate, and she said, she who takes this freedom to ask so much of a stranger— began the letter with a trembling hand. She's young in years and in knowledge, isn't able to talk much with a gentleman on religion, but her mother has taught her at almost 11 years to say, Thy kingdom come. And she believes. She can't be saying that sincerely if she doesn't do anything to help it on among the heathen. And so she sent that little bit of money to a man who was in charge of a missionary enterprise, hoping that Christ's kingdom, through her little donation, would be pushed forward. I read quite a solemn sentence on this subject today. He who refuses or neglects to do this cannot sincerely pray that Christ's kingdom may come, nor can he even repeat our Lord's prayer without incurring the guilt of formality and hypocrisy. Now, we don't want to be a formalist, nor do we want to be a hypocrite when we pray, Thy kingdom come. That means, the caution is, I need myself to be involved here. Allegiance as well. Not only are we looking here in terms of our prayer for accompanying exertion, we need to show allegiance to the cause. How do we do that? By showing that you and I are willing subjects of the kingdom ourselves. Not just that we're trying to reach others, bring them in, see their submission and yieldedness to Christ, but we in our lives must be yielded to Him ourselves. I can't claim to have a sincere desire to see others submit to Christ's scepter if I'm not submitting to it myself. I can't labor so that others might obey Him if I'm not doing all I can to obey Him myself. Those words would ring in my ears in Luke 6 and the verse 46, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And so, like those believers in the city of Philippi, we need to give First ourselves unto the Lord, Paul notes that about them when writing in Second Corinthians eight and verse five, those in Philippi they first give themselves to the Lord, and then they give their prayers, and then they give their offerings for the spread of the kingdom. The hymn writer said, Great God thy kingdom come. With reverence would we pray May the eternal three in one his sovereign scepter sway. Go on, Thy mighty God, Thy wonders to make known, till every sinner bought with blood shall trust in Thee alone.